0: You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. Hello, my name is Janet Smith. And I'm a professor of philosophy at the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. We happen to be a very good Catholic university. And today I'm going to start an eight-part series on sexual ethics. And I'm going to be covering the topic from the perspective of philosophy for the most part, but of course with a a very great attention paid to the Catholic perspective. Now, if I were at the University of Dallas, I could already feel some of my students squirming in their seats because they'd say, now, is this a philosophy class or is this a religion class? And I would say, well, in the Catholic Church, actually, philosophy plays an enormously important role, especially in the area of ethics, and maybe even especially in the area of sexual ethics. And so we'll be talking a lot about philosophy, largely natural law, but with some attention paid to some theological concepts. But I'll try to make it clear when I'm talking about which. But again, this is largely a philosophically based course on sexual ethics. And there'll be eight parts to this course. Today we're going to cover natural law and actually virtue-based ethics. That will take over a full hour of today's presentation. Next we're moving, and I, I think I'll still have some material left to cover on natural law for the next hour, but we'll quickly get into the meaning of human sexuality since that's foundational for any sexual ethics course. I actually have to have nearly two classes to cover that fully in the third class. We'll start covering different uh, violations of what is the proper use of human sexuality. We'll cover such topics as premarital sex, as adultery, rape, prostitution, sexual abuse, and masturbation. Then in the fourth class, we're covering largely contraception. Uh, It takes a class in its own, one of the most controversial topics in sexual ethics, and one on which, again, the Catholic Church has a distinctive position, though one, again, it doesn't think is a matter of revelation or is distinctive of Catholics themselves, to our own teaching, but something that any rational human being should see. Then we'll cover the alternative to contraception, which is various methods of natural family planning, and show how, in fact, these are very different ethically from contraception. The sixth class will be on on homosexuality, and I thought at one time I'd combine conscience with that, but I think I'll make conscience the the eighth eighth segment. But the sixth segment. We'll discuss uh, homosexuality. Then we'll move to reproductive technologies such as in vitro fertilization, test tube babies, artificial fertilization, uh, surrogate motherhood, this sort of thing. So today we're starting really with natural law and what we'll call as well virtue-based ethics. And I'm hoping that many of you will have an opportunity to do some of the readings of the text that I'm going to recommend to you. I'm recommending texts at various levels. Those who really want to get really started on a philosophic grounding of the issues. Some of the texts might be difficult for those of you who have not had a philosophy course, or especially if you haven't had a course in how to read St. Thomas Aquinas. So you might want to skip those if you haven't had any. But if you have had some Aquinas and you'd like to go back and look at some texts, I'll mention some that would be useful to you. I'm also going to be mentioning some texts that are on the market that uh, you can get through some fairly easily accessible publishers. And then I'll reference the Universal Catechisms. I I know all of you own one now since it's a national, international bestseller. Now, as far as natural law is concerned, again, we're talking about something that is philosophic. And Thomas Aquinas really is our chief source within the tradition of the Catholic Church for natural law teaching. And the text that one would want to start with is really an interesting text called the Summa Contra Gentiles, which is a text he wrote in order to help Dominican preachers convert those who were committed to Greek and ancient philosophy. And what he attempts in this book is to show how the principles of ancient Greek philosophy are fundamental, are precursors to Catholic and Christian thought. And then if you were a good Aristotelian or a good, largely a good Aristotelian, but even if you were a good Platonist or a good follower of Plotinus, you most likely would find the teachings of Christianity extremely compatible with the worldview that your philosophy had led you to take. So in this section of the Summa Contra Dintiles, he is talking about nature, and he's really going back to Aristotle's text called the Physics. Now in the modern age, the word physics tends to refer to the study of, of motion. And for the ancients, it also studied motion, but motion was more broad than our notion of locomotion, going from one place to another place. The ancient view of motion covered any kind of change that anything underwent. And most everything undergoes change, obviously, except for eternal things. But largely, the word physics referred to the physical world, all right? it referred to the world that you could touch and perceive with your senses, a world which changes, a world of plants and animals which undergo change. They go from a seed to a full plant. They go from a puppy to a full dog. And so this is a kind of a change that the ancients would observe. And so really in the Summa Contra Gentiles, Aquinas is talking about the physical world, the world that is is outside of us that we can perceive with our senses. Now, the reason this is important for ethics and for sexual ethics is foundational for natural law theory, and I'll talk about this more fully in a moment, is the notion that we can know the external world, right? We can know what is outside of our minds, right? What was outside of our own personal selves. Now this might seem an uncontroversial statement to many, but if you know much about modern philosophy, you know that this was challenged by moderns to the point where some moderns think that we can't know anything outside ourselves. Everything that we know is in our minds. In fact, some would say we can't even know if there's an external world. But clearly for Aristotle, we could know Uh, something about the external world, and Aquinas took this up. I'll get a bit more to the fundamentals that are are raised in that portion of the Summa Contra Gentiles. but here he is talking about the fact that things have natures, right? Things have natures, things have essences. And we can know that nature or that essence of things by consulting our sense data, by reflecting upon them in an ordered and logical fashion. The second text of Thomas Aquinas that I'd like to recommend is portions of his Summa Theologica. Now, that's another sort of text for Thomas. The the first text was written for philosophers. The second text is written for actually students of theology, beginners in theology. It's beyond most of us. Full comprehension of that text is beyond most modern PhDs in philosophy. But Thomas Aquinas actually wrote it for beginners. And here he's talking about everything. The word summa really means the totality of things, the summation of things. He's writing about everything theological. In the middle portion of a very large text, he talks some about moral virtue and some about natural law. So we're going to be using that as a source. But there he puts it largely in a theological context. And we'll talk some about that theological context in which natural law belongs. So now those of you who aren't too comfortable and don't own texts of Thomas Aquinas, you might find very useful a book by Charles Rice, which is called 50 Questions on the Natural Law why it is and why we need it, published by Ignatius Press. Now, Professor Rice is a law professor at the University of Notre Dame. And this is really a superb book. And actually, it quotes a great deal from Thomas's treatise on law. It gives you large passages and, even more helpfully, a very excellent analysis of these passages. Now, he takes it largely from the perspective of someone who's interested in jurisprudence. We won't do a lot with jurisprudence here today. We won't do a lot with human law or the law of the state. We're talking about natural law, but Professor Rice's point is he thinks the Constitution in the United States and the laws of the United States are based on natural law, and you can make very little sense of human law unless you understand that there is a natural law. I would say one easy way of making that point is to say that if you want to call a law an unjust law, if, for instance, you want to say the laws that at one time justified slavery, you want to say, well, we think slavery is wrong say, well, on what basis? If there is no natural law, if there's no natural standards of justice, then how could we say that any human law is a bad law, unless you have some standard beyond the law to judge the human law? So he makes a very good case in that text for the absolute necessity of natural law in order for us to be good judges of what makes for a just or an unjust human law. So this is neither really a philosophic text or a theological text, though it draws upon both again, he's largely interested in questions of jurisprudence. But it's an excellent introduction. I think most of you are familiar with Professor Ralph McInerney from the University of Notre Dame as well, who has many books on uh, Thomas Aquinas. And the one that's of interest to us here is his Ethica Thomistica, The Moral Philosophy of Thomas Aquinas, published by the Catholic University Press of America. Now this one's maybe a somewhat higher level of, when I say sophistication, I don't mean that Charles Rice's book is unsophisticated, but I mean for those who are somewhat more versed in philosophy, though Professor McInerney manages to write on a level that is accessible to many. But he gets into some details of natural law, particularly the analysis of the moral act, that other texts won't get into in the same detail. It's a wonderful text, a good introduction again. A little bit later in this hour, I'll be talking about virtue. There's many books about virtue that are useful. Uh, There's one by Peter Kreeft from Boston College. There's a more famous one, perhaps, even by Joseph Pieper on the four cardinal virtues. The one I'm recommending that I think is nicely readable and a good introduction is one by Gilbert Mylander, The Theory and Practice of Virtue. And then finally, as I said, I hope most of you own the Universal Catechism, international bestseller that it is. And you'll find there that there's a very good discussion of natural law, of virtue, of ethics, uh, largely under the rubric of the Ten Commandments. So I'd highly recommend that if you only have one text to read of all these texts, that that be the one that you consult. So those are the texts. Often, one way to get a good understanding of ethics and even of natural law is to look at what are called rival theories of morality. Natural law actually claims to be a very commonsensical way of reasoning about morality. As a matter of fact, natural law theorists claim that really everybody is fundamentally a natural law theorist. It's inescapable. You have to use natural law principles when you're thinking about ethics. And again, I'll explain that more fully in a moment. But there are those who try to escape natural law and formulate different views or different systems of ethics. There's many of them. I've listed, what do I have up here? Six. I could have dozens, really. We could have feminism up here. Uh, We could have all sorts of different deontological ethics. There's all sorts of different rubrics that ethics can come under. I've chosen ones that people may have heard about, that have been kicked around at different times in history and in modern textbooks on ethics, as ones just to use as a kind of a foil to bounce off of for explaining what natural law is. The first one I have up here is what I called conventionalism is often known as our relativism. And again, this is a theory that's based on the fact that well, we, there really is no such thing as any kind of universal absolute morality. That all there really is is a human community that's trying to live together to make laws so that we can get along and we don't really have chaos among ourselves. We don't harm each other. We treat each other with, with courtesy. We can get along in life. So we get together. The word convention actually means to come together. So we come together and we agree upon a few things. We agree upon the fact that you shouldn't murder, and you shouldn't lie, and you shouldn't steal, and that these things are, are things that we simply agree upon. They're man-made, They're things that we agree upon in order that our community function in some sort of peaceful, harmonious fashion. So obviously, different cultures at different times could come up with very different modes of organizing their cultures. That in one culture, you might have, for instance, polygamy that people might think it's perfectly permissible to have many wives, and another culture might decide that, well, really no monogamy is is right. You you can only have one spouse, one husband and and one wife. But that really there's no universal absolute standard by which one could say that no monogamy is the only proper form of marriage or that polygamy is the proper form of marriage. So that's one fairly common view of ethics. Again, it challenges natural law. Natural law and, and conventionalism are not compatible Another theory is utilitarianism, sometimes known as consequentialism, sometimes within the church known as proportionalism, also known in certain respects as situation ethics. The different terms keep coming up for this. The philosopher, of course, who is the source of this thought, or at least the one whose name is attached to it most often, is John Stuart Mill. And usually there's some sort of principle that's given for utilitarianism act in such a way as you can maximize the greatest happiness for the greatest number, would be a way of speaking about utilitarianism. Act in such a way that you can maximize the greatest happiness for the greatest number. Now again, this somewhat like the first one suggests that there aren't absolute moral rights and moral wrongs. That in some community, there may be certain acts that you think would really maximize human happiness. And in other cultures, you might think they wouldn't or in different situations. You would say, take something like premarital sex. You might say, well, maybe in certain cultures it would be a very bad thing for people to have sex before marriage. But in other cultures, you might say, no, maybe in Sweden they have such a culture where premarital sex or pornography seems to contribute to the greatest happiness of the greatest number. So you judge acts largely by their consequences. You judge acts by what sort of goods they bring about for a certain group of people. Again, maybe a situation you might say, well, for the most part, I think. A certain act is wrong you say for the most part I would say adultery is wrong but let's say if you have to be away from your spouse for five years you might say in this instance I could see that uh, there are certain goods that would come from an act taking up a mistress that I think outweigh any of the evils that come from it so here you could say there's a proportion of goods that you're seeking in this situation that would justify doing something that for the most part you would think would be wrong so those are two views, conventionalism and utilitarianism, both of them not holding that there are any universal absolute moral norms. Now, a very popular one in the recent decades, maybe centuries, we'd call emotivism or even hedonism. Now, this is a very great challenge to natural law theory. In a moment, I'll again talk more about it. But one of the cornerstones of natural law theory is that really reason should rule the emotions the ability to think that your rationality should really govern your life. Whereas emotivism or hedonism says, no, no, no. Uh, What is distinctively human and most wonderfully human are our passions, are our emotions. And that we need to live in accord with our emotions. And what's really important is to have our reason serve our emotions. That whatever our emotion is or our desire is, that we're trying to go after something, our reason should not try to tell us whether we should do it or not. It should tell us how to get what we want. If I have a passion for a chocolate bar, my reason shouldn't tell me not to have chocolate. What my reason should do is tell me how I can get it, right? where I can find that. Now, I'm oversimplifying obviously here. I'm running through a large number of complicated and nuanced theories with some effort to make them simple and and easily graspable. But the real father of emotivism, I don't know if you'd say hedonism, but certainly emotivism is is Nietzsche, Friedrich, Friedrich Nietzsche. He very much had this notion that we were all governed by a will to power and that our life should, should be a passionate life that is absolutely governed by a passion for life, and that our reason should not repress our passions. If we, have, we should live with a certain gusto, a certain desire to be fully passionate. Now, fourth kind of ethics we want to talk about here is human rights. This has become a very popular way of speaking, and it seems, perhaps more than the others, to have some universal aspect to it. Usually, when we talk about human rights, we talk about fundamental, universal, maybe even inalienable human rights. Our Declaration of Independence talks about the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And we think that this is something that every human being everywhere should have, and that our Constitution, our Declaration, is enshrining these for everyone. Now, even in our Constitution, these are God-given, right? Goes back to God. Sometimes they're talked about as being self-evident. But it's not at all clear that there's any kind of universal agreement on what is the foundation for human rights, where they come from. If I say that I have an inalienable right to life, again, as a Catholic, I might say, as a Christian, I might say, well, it's clear that God gave that to me. But we seem to think, as a universal community, that you don't need to be a Catholic, you don't need to be a Christian to think that there's such a thing as an inalienable human right, say, to life. And it's something that's governed the UN. It's governed many international attempts at any sort of international governance of the world church documents are rife with language about human rights the church is always talking about fundamental human rights so it's a very popular way of talking and thinking about ethics again it has some problems because it's not at all clear exactly what the foundation of those rights are did god give us these rights are they something that we agree upon to give to each other again like conventionalism we say i'm going to let you have a right to life because i want to have a right to life what are these rights? I mean, some people talk about a right to health care or a right to a decent wage or a right to a job. I'm thinking, well, is there any, any way of determining, do I have a right to get married? Do I have a right to so many children? What do I have rights to? Where do they come from and who has to supply them? If I have the right to health care, who has to provide that for me? Does the state have to provide it? Did God give me this right to health care again? Where does it come from? Human rights is a very promising, if you will, mode of of reasoning about ethics, because it does have, again, this universal aspect to it. But it has a problem, and it's not at all clear, really, what the foundation of these rights are. Another source of ethical insight, another rival version of morality, is what we call revealed religious commands. Now, different religions have different sacred texts and different sources of morality. Obviously, the Judeo-Christian tradition has the Bible, the Jews, the Old Testament, Christians, both the Old and the New Testament. Different religions, again, have their different sacred texts, their different wise men who have had some sort of revelation from God, and they can now tell us what God wants. Ten Commandments are a very good example of a revealed religious command. Sometimes people talk about fundamentalists. People point to a text and says, God says this, and it doesn't matter in a certain sense whether it makes sense or doesn't make sense. If God says it, we have to do it, and we have to do it in in the way in which he said. So when God says in the Ten Commandments that uh, thou shalt not commit adultery, do we need to ask him why, or should we just say yes? (laughs) You're God, I'm man, I'll do what you say. So a distinctively revealed religion would say that ethical norms, moral laws, are simply revealed from God, and man is meant to act upon them. There some problems with that. Obviously, Christ said some fairly outrageous things in Scripture. If your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your hand offends you, cut it off. Well, what does that mean? I would say my eye has already offended me more than once today, and I'm still walking around with, with both eyes. So the question is, am I not doing as Christ told me to, or was he speaking in a hyperbolic way? was he saying, you really have to govern your your eyes. But I mean, just because you had a, a lustful thought today as a result of watching something, that doesn't mean I want you to pluck your eye out. I'm speaking in, again, an exaggerated way to make a point. So the Catholic tradition certainly accepts revealed religious commands. But it says that we must use, to a great extent, our reason to interpret what those commands mean, when they're applicable and when they are not. Now the final one I listed up here is I'm calling autonomy, or autonomy-based ethics. The reason I put that up here is it's become very much of a, a principle or value, particularly in the area of biomedical ethics, which overlaps, as we'll see, with sexual ethics. And autonomy really is based on the notion, comes in a certain sense from a philosopher named Kant, Immanuel Kant, that we make our own laws. Now, it's strange because Kant's not a relativist. Kant does think that there are universal, absolute laws. But that we have to be ones that we make for ourselves. We can't have heteronomy. We can't have other people making laws for us. We have to dictate our laws to ourselves in order really to have human dignity. Now, even though Kant himself was certainly not a relativist, you can see how this quickly becomes very similar to relativism. Though up here, I'm really talking about a cultural relativism, where autonomy begins to be really an individual relativism, that I, as an individual, get to make my own laws. I'll talk again about this somewhat later. But a root of this is a a kind of skepticism. As I mentioned in some of my opening remarks, the world is largely skeptical about whether we can know anything, right? whether we can know that uh, adultery is wrong, whether we can know that premarital sex is wrong. We even wonder if we can know anything, again, as I said, about the external world at all. And if that's the case if we really can't know anything for certain if there's just your opinion versus my opinion who's to say what's right and wrong and why is it that i would get to say that adultery is wrong or premarital sex is wrong when you think otherwise and we shouldn't be imposing our morality on one another so those who believe in an ethics of autonomy basically want to say we should let people make their own choices as much as possible there may be some limits obviously that I may think that, uh, say, rape is wrong, or I may want to kill someone. You say, well, you can't do that, you'll be harming someone else. But as much as possible, we would like you to be free to do whatever you think you ought to do. Now, recent papal encyclicals have very much challenged this notion of freedom, and this, in a certain sense, modern obsession with freedom, that we as moderns must be free to do whatever we want to do. The fact that papal encyclicals have taken it up indicates that this is a area that is or a way of thinking that has really begun to dominate the modern view. My students say this all the time. When I ask them what freedom is, they tell me that freedom is doing whatever I want whenever I want. Right. Now we'll see again as we go on that the Catholic tradition very much values human freedom, but says that human freedom must always be limited by the truth, limited by objective reality. And this would be the the major debate or dispute that Catholic ethics has with an autonomy-based ethics. So these are six of the different views of ethics that are, you might say, options in the modern world that moderns tend to think might be able to identify themselves on one of these spectrums. The natural law ethics, again, isn't in a certain sense one more on the list, all right? Natural law challenges all of them. And to some extent, natural law says to all of them, you're partly right. There's something right in each one of these. And that ultimately, all of you, in some sense, make an appeal uh, to natural law, even when you're arguing within your own tradition. Those of you who are familiar with philosophy might be familiar with something called the principle of non-contradiction. The principle of non-contradiction is stated very formally. says something cannot be both A and non-A at the same time and in the same respect. Something cannot be both A and non-A at the same time and in the same respect, which basically means something can't be both one thing and its opposite at the same time and in the same respect. Meaning I can't be both here in Birmingham, Alabama, and in Dallas, Texas at the same time in, in, in the same respect. You might say, well, maybe this is being beamed to Dallas, Texas, so you're in Dallas at the same time. I say, well, that's not in the same respect. I can only be one place at a time. I cannot be both living in the 20th century and living in the 19th century. That's impossible, right? I'm either one or I'm the other. Something is either green or it's not green. It can't be both green and not green at the same time and in the same respect. Now, the reason I bring up this principle is this considered the, the fundamental principle of all human thought, that everybody uses this principle in their thinking virtually all the time. They may not be able to articulate it, may not be aware of it, But it's operating in their thought at all times. Well, natural law theory has basically the same kind of principle. That we are all operating by the same principles all the time, as far as ethics are concerned, in a very fundamental way, whether we know it or we don't. Meaning that we should all act for the good at all times. We should do what we think is good. We should do good and avoid evil. That's fundamental. That when people do something, when you ask them why they did it, they say, well, I thought it was the right thing to do. I thought it was a good thing to do. Even if they think it's a bad thing, they're doing it because they hope to get something good out of it. There's something good perceived there. Moreover, when they start to try to justify things, they are most likely going to be making some reference, as I'll talk here now, about things having a nature, essence, or purpose. I'm going to give us here now the principles of natural law. On the natural level, and then, ultimately, on the supernatural level. When I'm talking about principles, much like I just talked about the principle of non-contradiction, I'm talking about something that's absolutely foundational or fundamental to thinking about something. And natural law has certain fundamental outlooks that determine all of natural law thinking. And the first principle would be this one. All things have a nature, an essence, or a purpose. They have a telos. Telos means a goal or a purpose. Now this, again, in one sense is relatively uncontroversial. Everybody acts this way. What does that mean? Well, for instance, think about something like a tomato plant, all right? All tomato plants, to some extent, are the same. They all do the same thing. They all produce tomatoes. They have a purpose. What's a tomato plant for? It's for producing tomatoes. What's a lettuce plant for? It's producing lettuce. It's easiest to see with plants. It's also true with animals. And I'll get to a moment, it's true with human beings. But everything has a purpose. And since you, know, you can tell what that is, if you sort of observe a certain plant after a period of time, you say, oh, I know what this is supposed to be doing. This is what it's supposed to be doing. Supposed to. Ought to be doing. It has a purpose. If a tomato plant isn't producing a tomato for you, you say, it's a bad tomato plant. You don't mean a morally bad tomato plant. You don't scold it. You don't say you're a bad tomato plant, though you might in a sort of joking fashion. But you mean there's good tomato plants and bad tomato plants. Good tomato plants, taken the 4-H fair, you get yourself a ribbon uh, because it produced really great tomatoes. Now, that nature is good. I mean, tomato plants are good. That the nature of everything really is good. In its proper context, everything is good. That God, we'll get down to the supernatural in a minute, but God made everything to be good. God looked at the world and he said, it's good, All right? And that things work, have an internal principle, They have an internal mechanism mechanism is probably not the best word they have an internal principle which makes them tend towards what is good for them tomato plant tends towards producing tomatoes now it needs certain things in order to do that right it says it's good for things to act in accord with their nature it's good it's good for tomato plants to produce tomatoes right now and you know what a tomato plant needs if you want to get good tomatoes you know you need to put it good soil you need to give it the right amount of sunshine you need to give it some Fertilizer, you need to give it some water if you're going to get tomato. If you put your tomato plant in a closet, you're not going to get tomatoes. It's not going to be a surprise to you. Uh, If it is, you've got something to learn. But you wouldn't really blame the tomato plant. You would say, I didn't provide the tomato plant what it needs in order to fulfill its nature. Right? Its nature is good. We can tell what its nature is. Its nature is to produce tomatoes. And we can get that out of a tomato plant if we treat a tomato plant properly. Same with your puppies and the same with your kitties. You know how to get a good dog, right? You know what a bad dog is, a good dog is. And you can train them, and you can train them in accord with their nature, right? Now, fundamental to natural law is the view that humans have a nature, right? Human beings have a nature. We share natures with plants and animals, actually, and then we have our own distinctive nature. Much like plants, of course, we need water. We need food. We actually need sunshine. We need all sorts of things to prosper on a very physical level. Much like dogs and animals and cats, there are certain things that we need. We need exercise, we need motion, uh, we need to operate in groups sometimes, right? We're much like other things. But there's something distinctively human that we have that no other creature has. We have reason. Now, reason is a very problematic term, and I'll talk about it to some extent later, but at the moment, I'm going to talk about reason really is our ability to think. Right? We can think. We can reflect. We can appreciate. Right? We can be grateful. All of this is what our mind does, acts with our minds. Now, this doesn't mean that we have no room for the emotions or that the passions are unimportant. As a matter of fact, sometimes it's very reasonable to be extremely angry. And sometimes it's reasonable to be extremely sad. But what reason does is tells us in a certain sense when it's right to be extremely angry or extremely mad. If someone gets extremely angry because you've shown up a minute late, that's most likely irrational. And you would say, chill out, you know? (laughs) Think for a minute, I mean, it's not a big deal. Uh, It's not a terrible thing that I've done. You have overreacted. But if someone's uh, spouse or children die in a car accident and they are grief ridden, they cry and they cry, You don't tell them that they're not thinking clearly. You don't tell them that that they're overreacting. There's a matter of fact reacting in the right way. Actually, they're acting in accord with reason. They recognize that they have experienced a very great loss, and it's a very rational thing to do to cry a great deal and mourn a great deal in such a situation. So for humans, what we want to do is act in accord with reason, act in accord with thinking about things, with thinking about how things are rightly ordered and how things ought to be, and trying to get our actions in accord with what ought to be. Now, there's many different phrases that we can use for this. I'll elaborate in a moment, but let me just quickly say that when we talk about human nature being acting in accord with reason, there's other ways of phrasing that that I'll want to elaborate on as I go through these lessons, that we want to act rationally, we want to act in accord with virtue, we want to act in accord with a well-formed conscience, and we want to act in a loving way. These are distinctively human ways of doing things. There's no other animal that you would expect to act in accord with reason, to act rationally, act with virtue, act in accord with well-formed conscience, or act in a loving way. I said, there are certain things we know tomato plants need. They need sunshine, soil, water, rain, etc." You can say the same thing about human beings. Every human being needs certain things. Every human being obviously needs food, needs sleep, needs shelter. And if we don't provide that for human beings, we're not doing right by human beings. They won't prosper, they won't flourish. That's very fundamental, it's largely on a physical level. But there's other things that we need as human beings that aren't simply physical. We need friends, for instance. We need love, we need families. Uh, We need creativity, we need play. Uh, That without these things, we really think we're not fully human. And not to do those things, not to give those things to human beings, we would say would be bad. would be a bad thing to do, just like it's bad, put a tomato plant in a closet. It'd be bad to put a human being in a closet, bad to isolate a human being, because we need interaction, we need friends. So what we're talking about here is that natural law is based upon man's ability to make generalizations about things. We can make generalizations that things have natures, again, what these natures are, what's good for these natures, and that once you know something's nature, it brings with it a kind of an obligation to act in accord with that, that nature. Now, we can see that even if I have it down here, supernatural level, even if you didn't believe in God, even if those who don't believe in God, they know how they should treat tomato plants, right? If you want to get good tomatoes. And there's many people who don't believe in God who know very well how you ought to treat human beings, what is just, what is fair, what is kind. They know that you ought to treat human beings in a certain way. But if you expand your picture beyond just simply the natural level and you go to the supernatural level, and if you're a Christian and you believe that God created the whole world, and God gave things their natures, that he wrote into things their natures, you're going to have more reverence for all of these things, and you're going to have more of a desire to act in accord with their natures. You probably will treat a tomato plant slightly better, oddly enough, if you're a Christian, possibly, than if you're not, because you know it's God's creation. You admire it in a special way. God is behind that, and he made the whole. Now, the whole ecological movement, as a matter of fact, the whole environmentalist movement, has a great deal of overlap With natural law. The whole notion that the world is ordered and it's a good world and that every entity that exists in the world serves a purpose and that we have to try to figure out what that purpose is and respect that purpose. and We just can't go willy-nilly destroying species, willy-nilly destroying environments because things have a natural place and they a niche in the world and they make some kind of contribution. I mean this is food for something else. It's part of the food ladder, right? If you get rid of all a certain grub or something, you might be killing off the next higher species. So one has to be very careful when one fools with nature in any sense, because nature is good, and nature is harmonious, and nature works for a well-ordered whole. And if you see God behind that, if you can see God behind this great ordered universe, then all the more reason to respect it. And it's very interesting, even again in, in papal documents, there's more and more inclusion in these documents about a need for respect for the environment and a need for respecting God's nature, acting in accord with nature. So that again, we could see that living in accord with the natural law is actually living in accord with God's will, that God is the one who wrote the law into the nature of things. You don't need the supernatural level in order to understand the principles of natural law, but it really expands, it illuminates, it enriches our understanding of what the natural law is. Now, some people will say, well, again, how can you know? How can you know what's in accord with the natural law? And how can you say that something's against the natural law and something is in accord with the natural law? Again, we all of us have different experiences. We claim different things. Again, in one culture, people will say monogamy is the right form of marriage. In another culture, people will say polygamy is the right form of marriage. Well, what do you do here? <laughs> Good question. I'll see if I can help shed some light on that. But on the fundamental level, again, Well, let me just slip down to this portion, participation in the natural law. There's two different ways. This is from Thomas Aquinas, that entities, creatures, created things participate in the natural law. All non-rational created things participate in the natural law by inclination only. But rational creatures, we participate both by inclination and by rational free will. Now, this is very important. For instance, fish. Fish do not deliberate about whether or not to eat a worm, all right? You dangle a worm in front of a hungry fish, it eats it, right? It's right to do so. It acts by instinct and by inclination. It doesn't deliberate, it doesn't say, is this the right kind of worm for me? Is this a high cholesterol worm or a low cholesterol worm? You know? It just eats the worm. The whole universe operates this way except for man. It, it operates by natural inclination. Tomato plants naturally go towards the sun. They naturally grow when water is given to them they're reactive things that react to their environment whereas rational creatures you see are not simply reactive we are free we can think we can deliberate you put a piece of chocolate in front of me i can i probably have the same desire for that piece of chocolate as the fish does for the worm but i can think about it i can say is this good for me or not good for me should i eat it or should i not eat it so i have natural inclinations exactly like the fish does right but i also have an inner check I have an inner ability to think about it. I have an inner ability to say, is this good or is this bad? I want to hit someone. and make me angry. I think, I pause for a moment and say, should I or should I not do that? I'm not like a dog. I don't just bite, right? A dog gets angry, a dog bites. It might be trained not to bite, but it's trained out of fear because it'll be hit or something if it does. But a human being can internally govern himself because he can think. So you say, well, how do I know whether I should eat this piece of chocolate or not? I have a natural inclination, it looks good to me. I'm hungry, I'd like it. Well, experience will tell me whether I should eat or not. Maybe I'm prone to gain weight. My experience has been if I eat too much chocolate, I might gain weight, so I better think about it. My experience or the experience of others, I don't necessarily have to have the experience myself. I might notice that people who you know, jump off of third-story buildings get hurt. I say, I don't need to do that in order to, know I shouldn't do it. But it's from somebody's experience that I can observe that this is a bad thing. Then I know I shouldn't do it. So I have inclinations, I have experience, both mine and that of others. I can reflect upon it. I can see someone else might be eating shrimp and having an allergic reaction. I think, well, I shouldn't eat shrimp. But then I find out that I don't have that same physiology. I can eat shrimp without an allergic reaction. So I have to think about it. I can't just automatically say, well, this is my inclination or this is our experience. I have to think and see, does it apply to me? Am I the same kind of creature? Am I in the same situation? Do I have the same physiology? Do I have the same reactions? So human beings consult all of these different parts of their being when they're thinking about what is good and what is bad, how to act. And we have to rationally order them. Again, I may desire right now to take a nap or desire to eat, but there's many goods that are calling on my attention at any given time. I can't act just on impulse. I can't put my head down on the desk and sleep. I have to say, well, no, there's other goods here. There's the goods here of performing the task in front of me, fulfilling the contract that I've made. You say, well, all right, I have to think. I have to think. Many things are calling on me right now. I might want to sleep. I might want to eat. I might want to keep talking. Which one of these inclinations should I act upon? Again, well, I think about it for a minute. I say, well, it wouldn't be a good idea to take a nap right now. It wouldn't be a good idea to run out for a chocolate bar. But it would be a good idea to sit here and continue my instruction. So. On the natural level, this is how human beings know. And when we say human beings, again, should sleep eight hours a night, how do we know that? Well, we've observed how human beings are. When you say small children need naps, we observe this. They have an inclination to take one. (laughs) They're just about ready to drop, and they need one. Our experience shows us. We reflect upon it. You say children, when they get about to, oh, maybe, I don't know, three or four years old, now all of a sudden you think it's time to get them with other young children so they can learn how to interact and, and learn some social skills. It's a good thing to do. It ought to be done. It's good for them. So again, it's like a tomato plant. You learn what's good for it and you give it to it. Now this is exactly how we come up with moral rules, right? Moral laws on the rational, natural level. As we say we ought to do certain things. I'll talk about it again very much as we go along, but I'll jump ahead to something like premarital sex. You want to say, is this good for human beings or not? Do they prosper? Do they thrive? It's like our tomato plant, are we getting out of human beings what's best for them, what's good for them? And that's how you'll have to look at, well, we have a natural inclination. Surely you see teenagers have a natural inclination uh, towards sex. Hormones kick in. But they have this internal check that says, should I do that or not? Should I do that or not? The inclination is good. All our inclinations are basically good. But the thing is, is it good to act on them now? Is this the right order? Is this the right time? Is this the right time for this particular emotion or passion to be be satisfied? So this is how we, we think about things. You could come up with, and I hope to show you how you come up with the rule, it says premarital sex is wrong. You ought not to engage in premarital sex bad for human beings, right? You can come up with a moral law because of what we know about human beings and how they respond. Such a thing as monogamy, I mentioned earlier, polygamy, I think that's another thing that we can learn over the history of mankind. You say, no, there seems to be something that's fundamentally wrong with polygamy, and people have done it. Societies have functioned that way, but it really doesn't seem to be fully in accord with human dignity. It doesn't seem to be fully in accord with human nature. It seems to be treating women in this instance somewhat more as property than as a unique, special human being that deserves someone's full attention and unconditional, committed love. So you might have different cultures coming up with different solutions to what's good for human beings, but it's quite possible one culture's wrong, that they haven't really reflected upon what is really good for human beings and haven't really seen what the nature or dignity of the human being is. Now, on a supernatural level, we have a way of knowing the natural law. God knows that with sin, our intellects were flawed. right? And so certainly are our passions. And our natural inclinations can get away with us. We have a hard time necessarily rationally ordering them and even seeing how we ought to rationally order them. So God being God, that means good and loving, he decided to help us out. And he gave us the Ten Commandments that really are the natural law. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Right? Most cultures, most times in the in the history of mankind, have determined that these are good rules for human beings to live by. That if people start committing adultery, if they uh, murder each other, if they disrespect their parents, you are going to have a flawed society and flawed individuals. And that these are good rules. If you want, as Charlie Rice would call it, an owner's manual. Right? That the that the Bible is really an owner's manual. God has told us what human beings are here and told us how we are to live and how we are to be in order to take care of ourselves and to prosper and flourish. So we see that in the Old Testament. It's a good source, actually, for natural law. Thomas Aquinas goes into this a great deal in his treatise on law, that we could come up with these rules for ourselves. Most cultures, again, most times have come up with, don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery, honor your parents, that these are ways in which human beings, we, for our natural inclinations, our experience, our reflecting upon these, our ordering of them, we've decided that these are good ways for human beings to live. Now, the New Testament goes us one better, of course. Christ completely ratifies the Ten Commandments, but he goes a step further. He says it's not only not only should you not uh, kill someone, you shouldn't have a heart full of anger, a murderous intent. Not only should you not commit adultery, you shouldn't lust after someone who's not your spouse. You shouldn't really lust after anyone. So, not only are our external actions being judged, but now something interior to ourselves is being judged. In a certain sense, obviously, Christ did not come to loosen things. He came to change not one iota of the law. He almost upped the ante, all right? He tells us now that there's a whole new realm in which we are to be concerned about our well-being. It's not only, again, bad for us to commit adultery, it's bad for us to lust. So. Now we have another revelation of something again that we could come up with on our own. The best philosophers, the best philosophers in ancient times, the best philosophers in oriental cultures have come up largely with the same insights. But it's not easy for man to figure these things out. We think we're doing pretty good if we don't rob a bank. right? Uh, We're proud of ourselves. I've robbed no banks. The fact that I flipped through a magazine and wanted everything in it. I did something wrong? Well, maybe you did. Maybe there's an avarice and a greed there that uh, you should be concerned about. So there's, there's more than just the external element to Acts, and this comes out in the New Testament teachings. Now, a Catholic has a third source of teaching, which is the church teaching. And that the Catholic Church tells us, that it considers itself to be a reliable, faithful interpreter of the natural law. Obviously, there's nothing in scripture, let's say about nuclear bombing of civilian sites, There's nothing in scripture directly about contraception. There's nothing in scripture about test two babies. So how are we supposed to know? Well, again, natural law says you don't need to have revealed truth. Revealed truth is extremely helpful. It's really nice to know that God gave us the answers that we could come up with on our own. But we can figure things out on our own. But again, we can get very confused. And God has left us the Holy Spirit that guides the church that helps us to see things that we might get confused about, especially in our modern times and our modern culture, that we might think test tube babies are just fine. It's good for people to have babies. You can make a baby in a test tube, you can give them a baby, that's a great thing. But you have a little uneasiness about this. You might say, I don't know about that. I don't know. what. how am I to think about that? Well it's difficult and we'll see that it's it's not particularly easy as we get down to that to that level. But Again, the church thinks about it. The church thinks about it through its theologians, through its popes, through its holy people, and comes up with a teaching on these matters, which tells us that we can be assured that we are receiving reliable guidance by God, that God works through his church. The Holy Spirit guides the church. And so that if we're confused about some of these things that we could figure out on our own, we could work these things out. But given, again, that we're driven by our passions, we're confused by our passions, we're confused by our culture, We may need something more than simply our own rational reflection and ordering on principles to help us figure things out. And we get that through church teaching. So we can see here that when we talk about the the natural law, there's many different sources for us to discover what the natural law is. When we're trying to come up with, let me quickly say this, natural law in itself, when you talk about natural, Law for the most part, you're not talking about rules and commands. You're talking about the nature that's written into things, the order, the regularity that's written into things. Things operate by a natural law that we can determine. Right? Now, on the basis of those natural inclinations, those natural laws, that human beings need friends, for instance, human beings need spouses, right? you can then formulate moral laws. Right? You can formulate moral laws. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Right? Thou shalt not steal. Now, in one sense that's a natural law, but what it really is is a moral law based upon a natural law. Right? It's based upon something that's true about our nature, our natural inclinations, that we can then formulate laws. So when you, we go again to the Old Testament, New Testament Church teaching, we'll find all sorts of laws and commandments. And we can say, we speak two ways about these. We say they are the natural law. It seems to me it's, it's more precise to say that they are based on the natural law. They're based upon some insight, some observation about human nature. Now there are laws that the church has that are not natural laws. For instance, that thou must worship, uh, keep holy the Sabbath, okay? That you have to go to mass on Sundays and on holy days, right, that's not a natural law. That's not something you can tell by observing human beings, that they ought to be at mass on Sunday morning, that they ought to go to mass on different feast days or at one time that they should be abstaining from meat on Fridays. These laws are laws that God has revealed to us. And some of them are changeable. Some of them are not changeable. Worshiping on Sunday is a law revealed by God that's not changeable. We can't say you don't have to worship on Sunday. Eating meat on Friday is a church-imposed discipline. All right. So there's different kinds of laws within the church. And that's very important to keep clear. And this is something I think that moderns can get very confused about. They think that somehow the church can change the law on abortion or, say, on adultery or divorce or contraception because it says it's changed such things as eating meat on Friday. You see, those are two very different kinds of law. Abortion, divorce, contraception, etc., are based on God's law. All right, next time we'll cover a few more elements of natural law, and then we'll move into the question of sexuality.